The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the living word of God for the blood-bought people of God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would pour out your spirit upon us to enable us to receive your word with meekness for the salvation of our souls. May you be glorified and your people be gathered in to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. John Stamm was only 27 years old. His wife, Betty, was only 28 years old. But December 8th, 1934, was the last day of their lives. They were practically newlyweds. Just two months ago, before that, they had celebrated their first anniversary. They were new parents. Their newborn daughter was not yet three months old. They had been serving together in China as missionaries for just over two years. But on December 7th, 1934, communist soldiers invaded their city and took them captive. And the next day, the soldiers marched John and Betty through the streets of the town. And they called all the townspeople to come out to the streets to witness what they would do to foreigners who came to their land to teach people about God. And John and Betty Stam were forced to their knees and were beheaded. John and Betty are martyrs. They are Christians who gave their lives in service to the Lord and who died for his cause. And there is so much about God's work in and through their lives that is remarkable. I encourage you to read about them. But this morning, I just want to highlight a portion of a letter that John's father wrote shortly after hearing of the deaths of his son and his daughter-in-law. This is what he wrote. Our dear children, John Stam and Elizabeth Scott Stam, have gone to be with the Lord. They loved him. They served him. And now they are with him. What could be more glorious? It is true, the manner in which they were sent out of this world was a shock to us all. But whatever of suffering they may have endured is now past. And they are both infinitely blessed with the joys of heaven. As for those of us who have been left behind, we are once more reminded of our sacred vows by a telegram received from one of John's schoolmates in the Midwest. Remember, you gave John to God, not to China. Our hearts 
though bowed for a little while with sadness, answered, Amen. It was our desire that he, as well as we, should serve the Lord. And if it could be better done by death than by life, we would have it so. The sacrifice may seem great now, but no sacrifice is too great to make for him who gave himself for us. And I ask, what would give this man, what would give John's father the strength and the grace to respond to his painful loss in such a way? And the answer is found in that last sentence that I read from his letter. Let me read it again. The sacrifice may seem great now, but no sacrifice is too great to make for him who gave himself for us. You see, John Stamm's father was controlled by the love of Christ. Christ, the one who loved him and gave himself up for him. And God speaks to us today, to you and I today, from his word in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And God says that it is the same love of Christ that controls followers of Jesus today. That compels us to live for him who died for us. Now, what does it mean to be controlled or compelled by the love of Christ? The word for controlled literally means hemmed in. We are hemmed in. We are constrained. We are controlled. We are compelled by the love of Christ. And it is the love of Christ for us, not our love for him. The text is speaking about the love of Christ for us. The love of Christ for us is the motivating factor in our lives. It is the determining factor in our lives. Christ's love for us sets the parameters for what we will give our lives to and what we will not give our lives to. The magnitude of Christ's love for us compels us to live for him who died for us. As Paul reflects on the unfathomable sacrifice that Christ made, he is gripped by how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for hell-deserving sinners This is the single reality that shapes and sustains and empowers his every breath, his every decision, every sacrifice he made. Well, why? Why does the love of Christ control us? The Bible says the love of Christ controls us because one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And there are three parts to that statement that I want to unpack this morning with the aim that we too would be compelled to live for him who died for us. In the statement, one has died for all, therefore all have died, we see that there is a substitutionary death. There is the glory of the one who died, and there is the unworthiness of those he died for. First, the substitutionary death. The love of Christ that controls us is the love that Christ displayed for us when he died in our place. God's word says in 1 John 4, And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In his substitutionary death, Christ was a propitiation for our sins. What that means is this. It means that his death, was a sacrifice in which the awful wrath of God that was justly due to fall on us for our sins instead was poured out in full on Christ, the sinless Son of God, at the cross. He canceled the debt that was against us by nailing it to the cross. 
God's full wrath for our sin was poured out in full on Christ at the cross, so now the full favor and pleasure of God that he has in his righteous son can be poured out in full on us without limit. Let me say that again, because I don't think you heard me. There were no amens. Listen, God's full wrath for for our sin, God's full wrath for our sin was poured out in full on Christ at the cross so that now his full favor and pleasure that he has in his righteous son can be poured out in full on us without limit. There you go. That is the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. This is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The substitutionary death of Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Understanding it, grasping its significance, is what makes the love of Christ for us so powerfully compelling. John Stott says it this way, Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. At the cross, Jesus received what you and I should have received. His Father's full and furious wrath. He experienced what every other person in human history deserved and what he alone did not deserve. He took upon himself and was punished for the sins of his people. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think of that. Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, is being counted among the sinners. He is being treated as if he himself were indeed a sinner. He is being punished as if he were you. Being punished for every sin you ever committed. He's being treated as if he is the one who is selfish and proud. As if he is the one who has lied to his parents or been harsh with his children. As if he is the one who grumbles and complains and spreads gossip. As if he is the one who cheats on his taxes or steals time from his employer. As if he is the one who is consumed with his body image and whose God is his belly. As if he is the one who neglects the poor and fails to defend the cause of the widow and the orphan. As if he is the one who aborted his child. As if he is the one who is addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography. As if he is the one who was unfaithful to his bride. He's being treated as if he's the one who killed six people in Arizona because he was a slave to sin and his heart was deceitful and desperately wicked. As if he's the one whose intentions of his heart were only evil continually. This is what happened to Christ on the cross. He was suffering 
for us on the cross in our place. It's why he had to die. Because those are the kinds of things that we do. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. But Christ didn't just die. He died willingly. He died voluntarily. He died in obedience to his father's plan and because of his great love for you. The most amazing display of love ever. The world has never known a greater love. There is no greater love. And this love is what Paul has in mind when he says, the love of Christ compels me. No wonder it's Paul's prayer that we would be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. For when we do, it will compel us to live for him who died for us. Well, second, we see that Christ's love for us is magnified when we see the glory of the one who died. And who is the one who died? He is the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one by whom all things were created. He is the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. He is the one who is preeminent, who reigns supreme over all. He is the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the one who is God with us. He is the one who is the heir of all things. He is the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the one who is eternal, the alpha and omega, who was, who is, who is to come, the almighty. He is the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who is our Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, and Friend. He is the one who is not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. He is the one who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is the one who is the lamb without blemish or spot, the one who is without sin. He is the one who humbly came for us when no one else could come and no one else would come. He is the one who lived the perfect life we could not live and would not live. He is the one who died for us. He was the one who was raised for us. He is the one who is coming again for us. He is the one whose name is Jesus. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one, this one, This glorious one, the most glorious one ever. There is no one like him. He is the only one. There is no other. This one, this Jesus, has died for you, beloved. Such an amazing love from such a glorious one has it no effect. Does it not compel you to live for him? We live for him who died for us. Well, third, we also see the unworthiness of the ones he died for. See, the love of Christ is magnified particularly when you hold up the glory of the one against the unworthiness and depravity of the ones he died for. God's word says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2 describes us in this way. 
We were dead in our sins. We were living according to the course of this fallen world. We were following after Satan. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the evil desires of our bodies and our minds. We were by nature children of wrath. It was when we were enemies of God and friends of Satan that Jesus died for us. Christ suffered the wrath of God on the cross. He who had always done what pleased the Father was punished for our sin. For those who had never done what pleased the Father. For those who actually had rebelled against and rejected the Father. Who hated the Father. Who had no interest in pleasing the Father. Christ died for those whose minds were set on the flesh and were hostile to God. We did not submit to God's law. Indeed, we could not. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We were dead in our sin without hope. There was nothing we could do about it and nothing we would do about it. We could not save ourselves and we were so lost and dead in sin that we did not even want to be saved. When you look at the cross and you see the unveiled glory of Christ dying there for such a worm as you, there's no other response but to be compelled to live for this one who has died for you. Now you might not understand that this morning. If you come and you have an inflated view of yourself. No, perhaps you're here this morning apart from Christ and, and perhaps you think you are better than you are. Because if you are here apart from Christ today, you may think that you are a good person. Most people in the world think they're good people. And you might think that the, the good that you do, the, the truth is, the good that you do, and there is much great good you can do in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of God, if that good is not done in complete reliance upon God, Acknowledging the fact that he is your God and king. That you are nothing apart from him and you can do nothing apart from him. If that good is not done in complete reliance upon God. And if that good is not done with the sole aim of displaying the glory of God. Then that good, which in your eyes is a source of commendation before God. Actually becomes in the eyes of the holy God a source of condemnation. And you are infinitely guilty before the infinitely holy God. See, the gospel will knock you down and break you. But then it will lift you up higher than you ever thought possible. Tim Keller likes to say it this way. The gospel reveals that you are far worse than you ever imagined. And at the same time, far more loved than you ever dared dream. So how do you respond to this. The response is simple. You repent and believe in Christ. This is the best news the world has ever heard. And Jesus told us how to respond. Repent and believe the good news. This message today is for everyone who is here. It's for the lost who are here today and know it. There's hope for you. Repent and come to Christ. It's for the lost who are here today and do not know it or don't want to admit it. For those of you who may even be members of this church, you may have been members of this church for years. You may be leading in ministries. And I'm not saying this because I doubt your salvation. 
I'm saying this because I read in God's word of people who all their lives thought they were believers, thought they were doing great things for Christ, and at the end, Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I say this because I know the depth of sin in my own heart, and I used to be one of those who was trusting in his own goodness and not the righteousness of Christ. The message is for you, repent. Repent of your goodness and come to Christ for his righteousness. And this message is for you who have already done that. Those of you who know Christ. Because you're like a car that needs a new alignment every day. You must continually come back to the gospel. And repent and trust in what Christ has done for you. The love displayed by the substitutionary death of the infinitely glorious one for the infinitely evil ones is unlike anything you have ever seen. This is not just somebody substituting their life for another. This is Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords making a full recovery and then taking the electric chair for the man who tried to kill her and who did kill six others, including a nine-year-old girl. Or this is John Stamm going to China and liberating it from the communists and then taking the death penalty for the very soldiers who beheaded his son and daughter-in-law. But even those illustrations are flawed. You, got, you must multiply them by infinity and you're still not capturing everything that Christ has done for us. We have nothing we can compare it to. It is not just a feel-good sentimental story because those examples that I made up that I gave for you, they have no power to change hearts or to make people new. Congressman Giffords could die in the place of this young man, but it would have no power to change his heart, to make him into a new person. But that is exactly what Christ does for us. His death is not senseless. It has a purpose, a redeeming purpose. In Christ, we die with him. And we are raised up in newness of life. Paul concluded that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. And what he's talking about there is our union with Christ. The text literally reads, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore, the all have died. In your English Bible, the 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 is not there, but it's there in the Greek. And what it's saying is the the Bible is making it clear that the same people for whom Christ died, are the ones who in his death died with him. The love of Christ controlled Paul because he had concluded in a deep and profound way the reality of his identification with Christ, his union with Christ. You see, in our union with Christ, through the death of Christ, those who trust in Christ have also died with Christ. We have died to sin, and we have been raised with Christ to a life of new obedience. Let me read a portion of Romans 6 for you. It describes our union with Christ, and you can meditate on it later. Romans 6, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ and thus we've been set free from sin so now we can live for God. We who were dead now live. And this brings us to the results of being controlled by the love of Christ and the reason that Christ died in our place. In verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God's word tells us that he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, the reason Christ died for us was not only for our salvation, not only to save us from our sins and to rescue us from hell and make it possible for us to go to heaven, as great and glorious as that is, verse 15 makes it clear that Christ also died for us to make us a new people, Verse 17 calls it a new creation to give us life so we can now live for him. Verse 15 says that we who now have life instead of death, because Christ took our death, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. There is a no longer aspect to every Christian's life. We no longer live for ourselves. We used to live for ourselves, as our own gods, for our own glory. And that is the common trait of everybody who is apart from Christ. They live for themselves. So if you are here this morning and you're only living for yourself, thinking of yourself, your own wants, your own needs, your own desires, only concerned about pleasing yourself and doing what you want to do, if that is the determining, motivating factor in your life, then it is a strong sign that you do not know the love of Christ and you are still dead in your sins. The death of Christ frees us from the need to live for ourselves. People are always talking about what they need. What they need determines what they'll do or won't do, where they'll go, where they won't go, even creeps into the church. I won't go to this church because it's not meeting my needs. I won't do this. I won't go here or there because it's not meeting my needs. Jesus Christ died to set us free from that syndrome. No one else can meet our needs. Jesus Christ already has. We no longer live with our needs at the center of our lives, trying to build everything around ourselves. But we live for him who died for us. The one who has all we need, the one who gives us all we need. Now once you grasp and know the love of Christ and have been crucified with Christ, you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. In the life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. You are compelled to live for him who died for you. 
But you don't do it begrudgingly. You do it with a deep sense of privilege. You make it your aim to please Christ. You know, this theme is found throughout Paul's writings in the Word of God. Romans 14, 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Philippians 1, 21. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Good question you could ask yourself might be this one. Am I doing this for Christ and His glory? And anything I do, am I doing this for Christ and His glory? Am I doing this to live for Christ or for myself? To display His glory or to draw glory to myself? When you grasp the love of Christ, you no longer live by the world's standards or values. You begin to do things. You begin to make decisions that do not make sense to the world around you. Because you live for the one who died for you. Sometimes these decisions and actions don't even make sense to people who are in the church. Some of you have heard that my wife and I and our family were in the process of adopting a two-year-old boy, Anthony. He's from here in Lancaster County. And and, uh, if you're just learning that for the first time, or some of you when you heard this, You thought we were crazy, but we're not crazy. What you need to know is this. First of all, you need to realize that probably most of you here today think that I am better than I am. You're like my son Luke, who asks, Dad, why aren't you playing in the World Cup? You You think more highly of me than you ought to. You don't know the depth of my sin. You give me credit when all glory belongs to God. You need to know that any good in me comes from God alone. From God alone. That if it wasn't for His grace, I would be dead in my sin. I would be living for sin and loving it. It's because of Jesus and Jesus alone that I am alive today. You need to know that. And that is true for you as well. And in this process of Uh, considering whether or not we should adopt this child, you need to know this as well. It has only revealed to me my sin. It has only shown me that I am a worse person than even I realized and pointed out my utter need for God in all things. One of the reasons that I encourage people to memorize God's word is because God uses it in the lives of his people and directs us to obey him and it shows us the glory of Christ. This passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, was one of the verses on our list for last year. And my wife and I and our children, we were memorizing it. And so we were meditating on it day after day after day after day. And it was in the midst of that time when we were considering whether or not we should adopt Anthony. And it was this passage that led me to say, this is what God wants us to do because I realized The love of Christ controls me. Because I have concluded this, that one, Christ has died for me, and therefore I have died. And he died for me so that I will no longer live for myself, but for him who for my sake died and was raised. And so it became not a question of guidance, like Dr. Truman was saying. I didn't have to throw out the fleece. It became a question of obedience. Would I do what God was calling me to do? Some of you have said, oh, what a wonderful thing you're doing for Anthony. And I say, no, 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 a thousand times, no. 
You ought to be saying, what a blessing you are receiving. Children are a gift from the Lord. It is our great privilege to do this. And we will receive an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. Listen, life is a vapor. Eternity is long. I want everything in my life to be about Christ. Everything. When you no longer live for yourself, but for Christ, everything you have, everything you have is at the disposal of Christ and his glory and his kingdom. It is why you are alive. It impacts every aspect of your life. It changes the way you treat your children. It changes the way you love your spouse. It changes the way you relate to your parents, the way you run your business or work for your employer, your attitude and approach towards your schoolwork, the way you treat your neighbors, your attitudes and actions on the sports field, what you do on vacation and plan for retirement, your ambitions, your goals, what you think about, how you spend your money, it changes everything. It's all about Christ and serving and living for the one who died for you. You are motivated, just as Paul was, just as the apostles were, to live for Christ. His death becomes for you, like it was for Paul and the other apostles, the reason for everything you do. Your entire life is built upon this solid truth and fact that Jesus died for you and was raised again. And as a result, you can no longer live for yourselves, but rather you are compelled, you are controlled to live for him who for your sake died and was raised. And you do so with a profound sense of humble gratitude. But what about when I don't live that way? There are multiple times in my life every day when I am not living for Christ and I'm living for myself. When the Holy Spirit brings those to my mind, what do I do? It's a reminder to repent and run to the cross in faith. That's why we need the gospel every day. We can have peace and hope and no guilt because Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was raised for us. The gospel is our hope. In our union with Christ, we have the perfect record of Christ. Jesus always did what pleased the Father. So now, in God's eyes, he can look at me and see me as always doing what pleased the Father. And you too, when you trust in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding For us. So, what do you do? You rest in His love. You bask in His love. You meditate on the cross. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You pray the prayer of Paul. Oh God, give us power together with all your people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And as you pray that prayer, and as it is answered, you will be compelled again to live for him who died for you. The night before they died, John and Betty Stam were being pulled along by the communist soldiers. And someone asked John, where are you going? Where are you going, John? You can see what's happening. And John's response was this, 
We don't know where they are going. Talking about the communist soldiers. We don't know where they are going, but we are going to heaven. Beloved, whether we have 24 hours to live, or 24 years to live, or whatever time we have, every breath is a gift from God, and every minute belongs to Christ. And we are going to heaven. Only because Jesus has died and taken our health for us and he has been raised for our justification and we are united with him. So, as we are on our way to heaven, on our way to seeing and forever being with this glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, it is our great privilege And joy to live for him who for our sake died and was raised. And we do so with humble gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Gracious God and King, may you be glorified in our lives. Work out the truth of the gospel in each of our lives and us as a church. That your glorious name would be known in Lancaster County and throughout the world. That others too might come to live for your glory. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.